everyone. Welcome to another episode of Debatable with your hosts, Nina and Kyle. I'm Kyle. I'm Nina. For this episode, we're going to talk about red tagging, which is a topic that comes highly requested. It's very important in all our lives, not just as debaters, but you know, as students, as free thinkers, and ultimately just in general as participants in a democracy. So in 2018, President Rodrigo Duterte established through an executive order the National Task Force to End Local Communist Armed Conflict, or the NTF, LCAC, to promote what they call a whole-of-nation approach. That's the buzzword that they're using, even though we don't really know what that means, um, against this supposed communist insurgency. However, as we've seen, the primary tactic that they've been using so far, not just by the NTF, but also the military, is to identify various individuals and organizations as disguised operatives of the Communist Party of the Philippines and the New People's Army. Before we talk about all that, a bit about our guests, We're happy to have with us on our podcast today a professor of legal method and legal ethics in the University of the Philippines and of political science in Ateneo de Manila University. With a Master of Laws degree in transnational crime and justice, we welcome attorney Ross Tugade. So welcome to our show. Uh, hello, guys. Thank you for having me here. Extremely delighted to guest in a podcast. Podcast that's catered to folks who are interested in uh, the most debatable topics that we have today. But of course, I'll, I'll um, talk in length, uh, hopefully in today's episode, how red tagging isn't actually up for debate. Yes. So we agree there. But I guess a good starting point would be to discuss what red tagging is. Because despite all the definitions that exist, a lot of people still have miscommunication of what is considered red tagging or not. So in your opinion, how is red tagging defined? I'll defer to the definition that's found in most United Nations documents. Uh, Red tagging has been defined in those documents as uh, labeling, essentially labeling a group or an individual as a member of a terrorist communist organization or that the organization itself is communist terrorist and red tagging is a phenomenon that results in not just labeling these individuals but um, creating threats on their life, liberty, and security. Yeah, so I I guess that's very funny like now to think about it because Just a few days ago, the Assistant Solicitor General, I think Galandines, um, they said that it was not really a real term that's used by the government. Apparently, they said that the term was invented by leftists as propaganda. What did they mean by this? And is there any truth to that, actually? Uh, if you check the the fact check that was done by Rappler immediately after that statement was made, red tagging is actually a term that predates the CPP, NPA, NDF in the Philippines. So it's a quite quite an old term. Um, I think it even uh, is related to the McCarthyism, if you're familiar with that, in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, where there were a series of um, public hearings uh on anti-American activities against people suspected to be communists. So uh, it's essentially similar in concept and in practice here in the Philippines. And as to the truth tagging um, label that was um, dropped by ASG Galandines in the oral arguments, that's quite dangerous now. That's quite dangerous Um, and also very, very misleading. Uh, Her claim that it was created by the communists as propaganda um, to leverage it against the government, that's a falsehood. Uh, As you can see historically, uh, red tagging as a practice and as a concept has been existing even before the CPP, NPA, NDF came into formal existence. Yeah, I guess what we can see as a trend, even when it was used in the U.S. context, was that 
it, it seemed to be a tool to silence a lot of people, even those who did not explicitly support the CPP-NPA, right? Um, but what would be the difference, therefore, between people who support certain sentiments versus those that can be explicitly identified as being part of the left? Because the government seems to think that the moment you have ideals that may be socialist or may be communist to some extent or may be Marxist, that automatically it's justified to label you as part of these particular groups. Having leftist ideology or espousing leftist beliefs as a person uh, should not merit any form of targeting from the government at all costs. It should not be uh, a cause for you to be on the crosshairs of any form of government attack or any form of attack, uh, even if it doesn't come from the government. So any form of um, even discrimination on the basis of your belief, of your political belief, shouldn't um, shouldn't be uh, used sort of as a weapon against you. So... Um, Red tagging, okay, red tagging as a concept, it becomes complicated when you try to involve the legal complexities that would be implicated when one does red tagging. Um, I have uh, a paper that uh, actually won the ICRC competition. It plays in the ICRC competition on international humanitarian law. So a uh, shameless plug, you might want to check that out. Um, it's, it's available online. Um, anyway, I talk about red tagging at length in that paper. And uh, in international humanitarian law, there's this concept called continuous combat function. Okay? Uh, and that's peculiar to non-international armed conflicts. So conflicts of a local nature. Um, we have uh, the usual combatants, your state, meaning, for example, the armed forces of the government. And then you have the non-state actors, which could be, in the context of the Philippines, in the um, communist insurgency, would be your CPP-NPA. So they're your uh, non-state armed group combatant party in uh, that particular non-international armed conflict. So uh, going back to the concept of continuous combat function, IHL, International Humanitarian Law, would tell us that for a person to be considered a combatant and for a person to be the valid target of an attack, he or she must perform combat functions, meaning he or she must take up arms and perform that on a consistent basis. And the guidance from the ICRC, from the International Committee on the Red Cross, is that espousing political beliefs that are supportive of these combatants, but without the actual act of bearing arms, would not make you should not make you vulnerable to any form of armed attack. So even if you believe earnestly in the political ideals of the CPP-NPA, but without performing functions that would be considered combat functions, you should be protected by international humanitarian law. So that's the level of protection that you are afforded uh, by law. And acts uh, like red tagging actually create danger on lives of people because they become the target of uh, military or state attacks. And that's in direct um, contravention to the principles of international humanitarian law. What's interesting to me there is the idea that there should be a combat function. Um, But what does it exactly mean to have a combat function? Because I remember that there are some weird gray areas where some acts could be considered to be um, part of a combat function, even if they don't actually attack people. So I, the the most recent ICRC moot 
um, competition was talking about like training eagles to attack like drones. Um, and like some of the teams were arguing that that is considered to be a part of a combat function. So are those gray areas sort of applicable in the Philippine context? So like to what extent um, should you be like giving support to a particular organization in order for it to be considered part of a combat function? Um, the ICRC guidelines are general in their language and could be quite nebulous when you try to interpret the language of the ICRC guidance. Um, and as a caveat also, before I delve into a deeper discussion on this, um, this isn't... Um, this hasn't yet attained the status of customary international law. However, however, okay, um, non-international armed conflicts are governed by Common Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions. And Common Article 3, for all intents and purposes, is customary law that's um, enforceable in the Philippines, should be enforceable in the Philippines. Um, that definition of, that, that concept of continuous combat function in the ICRC guidelines, although it hasn't reached the status of customary law, it's, it's arguable. Uh, there is growing consensus as to its acceptability. And uh, continuous combat function although nebulous in its definition in the ICRC guidance, we can um, examine it or we can look at continuous combat function as a concept in a very common sense way. In a very common sense way. Uh, what do I mean? Uh, when someone posts, for example, uh, statements of uh, um, support, for example, for the CPP-NPA, let's set aside the anti-terror law um, because that's another like, complication. Yeah, that's so like, let's, <laughs> that, it's like another yeah, that's another that's a, yeah. entirely that's an entirely different um, animal in itself, no? Because that's a penal statute. That's a that's a that's criminal law. But in theory, if we just take IHL itself. And for example, someone posts um, CPP, NPA, NDF, statement of support. Um, that isn't continuous combat function for the purposes of IHL. However, you have the anti-terror law, which could interpret it as inciting to terrorism. So that's why um, the anti-terror law is sort of a wild card that if you, you mix it in the bag of discussions on red tagging, it kind of complicates it in a way that um, acts that would normally um, would normally uh, be just ideological or, or acts that pertain to one's thought and belief would be causes of action for the state to prosecute you. So, you know, the, the anti-terror law muddles the whole thing. It muddles the whole discussion. So the, the problem with red tagging is that it makes ordinary civilians into targets of state action, military state action. I, I remember this concept of the, the principle of distinction where you always have to distinguish between like a civilian, a part of a civilian population and a military objective. What is the purpose of that principle of distinction because like i i understand that it's something that we just accept uh, whenever we're learning about international humanitarian law but what was the purpose of that principle to begin with okay uh to answer that question we must first go back to the purposes of ihl ihl or more sexily known as the law on armed conflict. <laughs> IHL is a bit corny, you know? If, if, you, if you hear the term, oh, it's, it's all about um, helping the sick and wounded in war. But if you, if you call it by its other name of law on armed conflict, and then it automatically becomes this very, very cool uh, body <laughs> of law. <laughs> so uh, anyway, the law on armed conflict 
<laughs> the Law and Armed Conflict or IHL, um, its main purpose is to shape, facilitate, and constrain the method of warfare. It does not prohibit warfare totally. IHL aims to lessen the net human suffering in war. It doesn't prohibit war. It aims to lessen the net human suffering in war. And one of the ways by which human suffering is lessened or uh, decreased in its impact um, is by protecting civilians. And this is very, very archaic law. It, if you trace back these um, these codes of conduct of war, you can trace it back up to the ancient uh, ancient empires. So that's how old and customary it is because uh, if you uh, look at the history of the law of armed conflict, it's it's actually rooted in concepts such as chivalry. Right? These, are, these are the old um, um old considerations in warfare, chivalry. But now, of course, it's humanitarian consideration because we don't have uh, knights in armor anymore. But anyway, again, look at IHL's objective of lessening human suffering in war. And the principle of distinction actually plays into that by protecting your civilian populations who do not want to have to do anything with the ongoing war. So you protect them, you shield them from that armed um, conflict, that ongoing um, combat situation. And one of the principles of IHL or one of the one of the most important presumptions in IHL is that if you're not sure if that person is a combatant, you presume that he or she must be a civilian. When in doubt, presume civilian status. And so that's how red tagging um breaches the principle of distinction, it automatically creates the presumption that, or it flips actually the presumption that if a person um, displays ideological uh, affinity or sentiments that are sympathetic to uh, the communist organization, communist combatants, they, then they automatically become the subject of state targeting. And that um, makes the state ideally it makes the state liable for breaching or for violating the principle of distinction. So that, that means it's a war crime, doesn't it? Like targeting yes, members of the... Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but... Exactly. If you look at uh, Republic Act 9851, the IHL law of the Philippines and the law which basically domesticated the Rome Statute, and of course the Rome Statute contains war crimes as one of the main cri uh, main crimes against peace. Um, yes, uh, breach of the principle of distinction would count as a violation of IHL in the context of a non-international conflict, non-international armed conflict. And so it is a war crime. So would I be correct in understanding? So so it's a, it's a republic act, right? So... Would I be correct in understanding that even if Duterte pulled out of the Rome Statute, pulled out of the ICC, he can still be prosecuted for those war crimes? Because like, I, I was thinking that um, like before this, years ago actually, when, when the pulling out of the ICC first happened, I was like, how are we going to prosecute these people for war crimes? So uh, apparently... Since it was domesticated, we don't need to be party to that um, treaty in order for us to prosecute these war crimes. But then I, I suppose there's like political problems to that, don't you think? Of course. I mean, who wants to be called a war criminal? Who wants to be prosecuted as a war criminal? Right? Uh, that's why as much as possible, um, people who will be accused of committing war crimes would want to mitigate it to the mildest um, threshold possible because war crimes, crimes against humanity, uh, crimes of aggression and genocide, these are your crimes against peace that's globally accepted as or universally accepted as grave crimes against 
the entire uh, human race. So no one wants to be called a war criminal. But effectively, technically, that's the implication of being prosecuted under RA 9851. If it's a domestication of the Rome Statute and the Rome Statute penalizes these crimes against peace, um, effectively, committing a war crime such as breaching the principle of distinction by targeting a civilian intentionally makes you a war criminal. So I have a question, though, in terms of I know that a lot of watchdogs internationally have already been calling out this government for instances of red tagging and even subjecting these people to being targeted by, I don't, I don't want to say what these groups are or who they're attached to, but certain groups have been attacking journalists and even uh, volunteers. Uh, most recently, there are a bunch of journalists who have died because of the red tagging that has taken place. Like, how has this government for so long, been avoiding accountability? I think one problem with um, exacting accountability here in the Philippines is that fundamentally, leftist beliefs are frowned upon. So like you look at it on a, on a discursive level or on the level of popular discourse, even if you're not a card-carrying member of the CPP NPA, as long as you espouse vaguely leftist beliefs and you blurt those out in public, you're automatically demonized as a communist slash terrorist. And that, I think, is not just a legal problem. It's bigger than a legal problem. It's a problem on how we see uh, political beliefs or political ideologies different from what the quote-unquote establishment espouses as automatically um, bad or automatically evil and criminal in nature. So you have that problem in terms of popular discourse, and that's actually posing a challenge to exacting accountability because uh, in the minds of people um, trying to um, trying to uh, for example discuss um, if, if you're trying to uh, espouse leftist beliefs you're made automatically vulnerable you're made automatically vulnerable by the fact that um, you're you're political belief is othered by most people. So at that level, uh, people would automatically think that ah, you're, you're, you're espousing very, very dangerous beliefs that are very anti-democratic. When, in fact, it's not anti-democratic at all, but it's a function of democracy to have a, a divergence of beliefs, Right. Uh, so that's that's one challenge to exacting accountability. Another challenge, I think, I think in my personal opinion, would be the way we creatively frame um, these offenses. For the longest time, we see them as violations of international human rights law, which is a separate field of law from IHL. And once you uh, frame that way, it's a violation of the right to life, right to liberty, right to security. And all of these arguments, legal arguments, are perfectly valid. They're perfectly sound. But um, there are no uh, mechanisms, so to speak, to prosecute human rights violations as human rights violations in the Philippines. We don't have a specialized human rights body. We don't have specialized human rights courts. We don't have criminal statutes that prosecute human rights violations as human rights violations. They're always prosecuted as common crimes. For example, EJ case. Okay, let's take EJ case as an example. If a person uh, is killed, for example, in a police operation, and there are signs that uh, the death 
was a result of abuse of power from the police or abuse of superior force from the police. That's going to be prosecuted as a murder case. It's not characterized as a distinct crime of a human rights violation. Because human rights violations are a separate species in themselves. So this is quite, I, I'm, I'm going now to a very technical discussion, but I, but I think it's very important to see that this is actually a, um, a problem in terms of exactly accountability that uh, we see human rights violations as ordinary crimes and not as violations of um, state obligations, respect, protect, and fulfill human rights. So it when we try to um when we try to uh when we try to use existing remedies against red tagging what do you think of it's the writ of amparo right or the writ of habeas data or uh if you deem it to be libelous you can even uh try to prosecute for libel or a civil case for defamation or slander. Those are perfectly valid remedies, creative remedies uh, against red tagging. But does it really capture the gravity that would um, be proportionate to the danger that was put on your life as a target because you were red tagged? Um, what is the punishment for libel? It's it's very it's it's a light offense I think uh, it's it's a light offense and uh, it doesn't quite capture the gravity that's um, proportional to being red tagged I don't think it's a mere uh, stain on your reputation red tagging because it puts you actually in the crosshairs of uh, unarmed attack uh, a violent attack so and and a lot of people have. Uh, on record, been red tagged, and later on were the victims of either murder or enforced disappearance or um, arrests and detentions. So we need to uh, look for creative ways. That's why my um, proposition is to consider prosecuting under uh, violations of IHL for red tagging uh, and see if the courts would accept that argument. But won't the trade-off there be? Like, it's it's much easier to prove that common crimes are committed. For example, it's, it's much easier to prove that defamation has happened. What are the unique challenges that come with prosecuting red tagging in itself as you know, a violation of IHL rather than all those other common remedies? Well, for one, there's a huge, I would hazard to guess, a huge unfamiliarity with IHL in the Philippines. I don't know if that's a presumptuous um, statement, if that's, you know, just me assuming that um, we're not so familiar with IHL. But come on, guys, realistically speaking, where did you learn of IHL? In moot competitions, right? In journal articles. Uh, yeah. Is it a subject? <laughs> is yeah, it a actually, subject in law school? IHL? I, I actually have heard stories that it used to be. It used to be its own separate thing before, but now it's not. So yeah, I actually did right? really learn about it in law school and in, in high school, but that was just because of debate. It was yeah. just a debate thing. Yeah. Exactly. If you're if you're not, um, for example, a mooter in law school for the IHL moot, you wouldn't be so familiar with all these um, principles of IHL as compared to someone who, uh, you know, who makes it uh, a point to study all of these things intentionally. Even in, I think, PIL, uh, they would uh, give you the basic stuff, basic principles in PIL because PIL covers uh, a wide range of topics. You have the law on the sea, you have uh, the law on treaties, law on diplomatic and consular affairs, you have what? Uh, 
space law, I think, is an emerging topic in PIL. So you have all of these things, even international human rights law is covered under PIL. And then IHL is just a topic for what? One or two sessions. So I don't think my assumption that it's not a field that's well-developed in the Philippines uh, is entirely unfounded. Um, try to make a case survey where IHL was applied uh, in the Philippines or at, or at least uh, in jurisprudence. Um, we don't have a very, very thick um, or rich uh, body of jurisprudence for that. So that's a challenge. That's certainly a challenge uh, why IHL uh, as a strategy for prosecuting all of these crimes Uh, specifically red tagging, would be quite difficult. Uh, of course, uh, as, as uh, we talked a bit uh, earlier, uh, you can certainly sue for defamation or you, you can sue for um, slander, whatever, uh, all those crimes against your, your honor or your reputation. Um, you can also try to file for a petition of Um, amparo or filed for uh, protective reliefs under amparo but the what is the trend right now if you look at the trend of uh, how amparo cases were decided it doesn't bode well for uh, people trying to um, get protective reliefs i think there's a case involving um, a party list representative who uh, tried to get Uh, the protective writ of Amparo, but it was denied by the Supreme Court because they said mere membership in a group wouldn't automatically make you qualified for these protective writs. So what are your remedies, right? Um, you 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 gone for the low-lying fruit. You gone for the uh, easier ones to prosecute or easier ones to prove in court. So that's certainly a challenge. So I'm, my, my understanding of it is the committees created to deal with the communist insurgency, assuming it exists, um, try to make those remedies either obsolete, I would say, or like people wouldn't need to resort to it. So let's assume first that they have really good intentions for creating these committees in the first place. Um, one of their main goals would be addressing the problem as a... Whole of nation, was it? Yeah, the, the, the whole, whole of, of nation, nation approach. Yeah, so a whole of nation approach. And from my understanding, it does take the whole nation to deal with this problem, regardless of if it's red tagging or actually the communist insurgency. But what do you think is your interpretation of it? Uh, and what do you think the government means when they say whole of nation approach? At the risk of, no, no, it's too risky. <laughs> I'm not gonna say what what I have in mind. Uh, my frank assessment of the whole thing, but I think the the premise that we should be operating on is that we should be addressing the roots of the communist insurgency and why it has persisted for decades in the Philippines. It's not just because you know we're leftists and we're so angsty and we want the government to fail. That's it. No, um, the people. The people who take up arms against the government, and I'm not justifying them. Uh, just a, just a, um, a disclaimer. Uh, I am not justifying any form of armed violence against the government. But what I'm saying is, we have to look at the roots of the problem. And some of these um, problems, fundamental problems, are economic or or uh, social economic in nature. Um, that's why I think it's more important for the government to refocus their strategies and try to um, try to sincerely um, engage um, the communist insurgency problem from the peace process perspective. Um, decades have passed and uh, we don't have a comprehensive peace agreement uh, between the government and the communist uh, insurgents. And I think we should at least try. The government should at least try. Maybe not this government, but maybe the next government should at least try to 
um, engage the problem at its uh, social economic roots and not just look at it as um, a problem of violent um, uprising in itself existing in a vacuum. There. But that's the thing, right? I, I, I know this government did have attempts. And I know Duterte came into power especially and became popular with the left exactly because of promises of dealing with the socio-economic problems. But after a few months, uh, a lot of backtracking took place. A lot of words were exchanged that led to nothing. Um, from your perspective, what do you think led to the crumbling of the relationship that existed between those who were left-leaning as well as this current administration? I am not uh, very familiar. I have not really followed that whole falling out between the left and Duterte. So uh, I want to caution from making um, a categorical uh, statement or even a guess as to why that happened. But I think um, much of it, uh, I can speculate that much of it is because the government was not entirely sincere in making um, drastic economic um, changes, you know, um, or even genuinely trying to resolve the um, problem of communist insurgency um, as an as an economic or a social economic problem. So. We have to we have to backtrack. I think. I mean, the government, not me, <laughs> not we. I mean, the government has to uh, has to reel back from this very you know viscerally violent strategy of just um, funding this particular administrative. I don't know it what nature the, this body is. It's a it's a it's a presidentially created body, and instead of funding that to just red tag people, why uh, why not try um, allocating all of those funds to um, you know create a genuine um, policy for. Uh, fostering social justice, for example, in the countryside or fostering um, all sorts of uh, long-lasting um, reforms in economic policy. There is so much potential for um, resources of, of that magnitude instead of just, you know, funding um, people to post on Facebook um claims against certain personalities why not um actually use the resources to address uh the economic uh, imbalance the the disparity in terms of economic resources in the ground especially in the countryside where communist insurgency has been going on for decades so speaking of defunding um we've seen a bunch of senators condemning the red tagging that happened um, done by the NTF against one of the organizers of the Maginhawa Community Pantry. Um, what can Congress do to correct this? Or like, does Congress even have the power to take those funds away from the NTF in the first place? Because I remember um, Senator Risa Hontiveras was saying that we, we should cen- censure the, we should get mad or condemn it. And then I was like, why are we like being satisfied with just this? Don't you have the power to just like outright defund it altogether or outright make legislation that categorically says that red tagging is, it's not just a common crime. It's like, it's an actually bad thing. Uh <laughs> I don't know if Congress or, or if members of the Congress are deliberate, deliberately sanitizing their or, or distancing themselves a bit from this whole problem because the NTF LCAC has grown to be, in, in a very short span of time, has grown to be this very powerful um, 
office in the government uh, to the extent that um, people who have been the subject of NTFL red tagging would immediately feel the consequences of that red tagging. <laughs> um, they would immediately what are uh, f- uh, receive death threats and the like. Um, look, look at what happened to Patricia Nun. Um, the NTFL CAC spokesperson compared her to the devil, literally, <laughs> on national television. And then uh, you then have um, suddenly state forces patrolling these um, community pantries. It's that immediate. It's that powerful. And uh, I think that's a... That's a factor as to why all of these legislators have been trying to caution um, against um, doing something very drastic uh, versus the NTFL in terms of you know funding the office. Uh, but it's time that they do something about it because clearly um, this has grown to be a very, very um, pressing issue. And it's threatening the lives, the actual lives of actual people. So it's time for them to step up and do something about it. I mean, they—they, they, I think they um, filed a resolution that um, calls for the defunding. But then, like what you said, why not just defund them outright? So, <laughs> diba? Parang actions speak louder than words naman talaga. So why not act on it? Yeah, so I guess the main problem just goes back to what you said earlier, which is that leftist beliefs or even any association with the left is something that's frowned upon and people would try to avoid. And we see that with our Senate as well. So I guess a question now would be, how do we transition out of that? How do we make conversations about leftist beliefs or more socialist stances common or less intimidating, especially for our younger listeners and like people in the academe in general that have this sort of chilling effect because of the red tagging that has been taking place. That's a problem as old as, or even older as um, the communist uh, insurgency in the Philippines. No, at least in the Philippines setting, it's, it's, Something that you can't address uh, in the immediate because it involves your cultural institutions, your pedagogical institutions, educational institutions, um, social institutions have to be uh, involved in conversations that, you know, this, this word that's very hip with youngsters right now, you know, normalize. <laughs> we have to normalize uh, discussions on... Um, alternatives to the present capitalist system because clearly the pandemic has shown us that this system is not working. This system is creating further inequality. Uh, you know, I saw a tweet uh, this morning um, that that says even if um, uh, Melinda Gates, recently divorced Bill Gates, no, um, rented this particular uh, private island and lived uh, there, uh, paying the $100,000 plus plus rent per day for the rest of her life, she would be able to um, pay her way out of living in that island. So that's how much uh, the redistribution of wealth is needed, not just in this country, but in this entire global system. So we have to normalize discussions about critiquing capitalism as an economic and even a political system. So it's a heavy conversation. So, so uh, it's not just through the laws that that could uh, change that. Certainly not the laws. Um, certainly not just a not just a single generation of um, of uh, people can change that. But it's it needs to span um, an intergenerational a conversation amongst our different institutions. And the way to do that is to, of course, just organize. You know? Organize, um, uh, not in the sense of, you know, organizing groups to, to 
not just in the sense of organizing groups to uh, overthrow the government. Of course, we don't advocate that. No? Um, organize in the sense of create um, communities of conversation. Uh, communities that would try to rethink uh, what we say when we say uh, or what we uh, think of as a fair economic system, a livable economic system. So that's going to take a lot of work and that's going to take quite some time. But, you know, we have to do it. We have to do it. But in the meantime, when like while these conversations are taking place or while we're preparing for them to take place, how can we, you know, leftists, like generally speaking, <laughs> debaters, leftists, are you? <laughs> uh, generally speaking, like how can we protect ourselves or others from being red tagged, and al- also against the all of the different consequences that will arise because of that red, red tagging, especially um, if there aren't a lot of institutions that are willing to stand up for them. So I was thinking about like UP and how. UP really rejected the idea of just red tagging in general. But I know a bunch of people, like one of um, our students actually, you know, <laughs> um, wanted to create art that specifically criticized the government. But she was asking me about like, will I be branded as a terrorist because of this? And unfortunately, I couldn't, I couldn't give her legal advice because I wasn't, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> but like, for like, what advice would you give? Like, how would people, regular people, be able to reasonably protect themselves from, like, these really scary tactics that our government has been using to silence what it seems like dissent? That's a very difficult and tricky question because, uh, again, we have over our heads, dangling over our heads, the anti-terror law which has this whole menu of um, crimes or offenses that can be used against you, um, even if it's legitimate um, dissent. And remember, in the previous um, oral arguments, I think it's the last one, uh, the the one um, held last Tuesday, uh, the Solicitor General's office said, advocacy is a matter of defense kind of uh, flips the um, presumption that you're exercising your constitutional rights, correct? So if that's the framework that we're working against, that there's a presumption that you're out to do terrorist activities and uh, the fact that you're advocating for something should be a defense raised in court, uh, that already puts us in a very disadvantageous position. So to reasonably protect yourself, I guess. Um, uh, difficult, difficult question. Um, again, uh, solidarity is important. Um, resting on your communities to um, have people stand by you uh, if you get uh, tagged as um a leftist communist out to overthrow the government. Uh, there has always been strength in people's solidarity. So uh, let's politically rest on that and build that up. Um, but for now, it's quite our movement is quite constrained because the litigation over the anti-terror law is still ongoing. Uh, no TRO has been issued by the court to uh temporarily halt the enforcement of the anti-terror law. So we're quite in a uh, tight spot, so to speak. So, hirap magsabi na ano eh, na mag-ingat tayo because again, that can also be construed as something else, di ba? So it's, it's quite tricky, but also I think a practical thing to do is to know your rights. To know what you're uh, legally... Um, entitled to under the Bill of Rights in the Constitution, and in the event that you get um, targeted or arrested or whatever, uh, you can easily invoke your rights on the top of your head, and that would give you some sort of protection against um, abuse of power. 
So thank you so much for all of that. I guess before we end this discussion and this episode, one final question would be, what message would you have for our listeners who, I guess after that kind of depressing conversation, would be rather disillusioned or losing hope in general, given how long this problem has been going on and how it feels closer to home more now more than ever. So what advice or what message would you like people to keep in mind as you know, we just go through our days and watch the hearings as they happen live. Do scroll on Twitter. <laughs> um, an advice would be, uh, you know, uh, right now that we still have our fundamental liberties, uh, we still enjoy some sort of Um, system of rights, civil rights, and political rights here in the Philippines. Uh, let's uh, maximize our spaces and um, just, and especially as law students uh, who might be your audience in this particular episode, you know, try to share what you know about uh, protecting yourselves legally. So that's uh, one practical advice. And my more Um, I guess my more uh, corny advice or cheesier advice would be um, just remember that if you're fighting for what you believe is right, um, just hold on to that sense of commitment and values and principles. And uh, I think it's in V for Vendetta that, um, that said you can't jail thoughts you know you can jail an idea so of course you know try to keep out of physical jail <laughs> um be steadfast in your commitment to truth and you know equality solidarity all of those things yeah so i i, I sorry i just really love that movie because <laughs> You nerded out a little bit. Like, like I had to cover my face because I was getting killing over the movie. Um, so again, thank you so much for agreeing to be part of our episode. Um, we appreciate it so much. Um, especially because we've been getting so many requests to actually tackle this topic, but we never felt like we were competent enough competent enough to do so. So we extremely, extremely grateful for all your help. Um, so that's it for this episode. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> bye. Bye.